Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Ella Fredentuono, recording today from Charlotte, North Carolina. In previous episodes of this podcast, we've talked with guests about Ottoman migration to North America, Ottoman New York, the Armenian diaspora, and transnational actors in the historical and contemporary Middle East. Today, we move our discussion of the Mahjar, or diaspora of Arabic-speaking migrants to Latin America, and specifically Argentina. Joining me on the podcast today is Lily Pearl Balafay. Welcome to the podcast, Lily. Thanks for having me. Lily is an assistant professor of history at Western Carolina University. Her research is on South-South connections between Latin America and the Arabic-speaking Eastern Mediterranean. Her current book project is Argentina in the Global Middle East, 20th Century Migration and Mobility. She is also one of the editors of Mashrik and Majar, Journal of Middle East and North African Migration Studies. So Lily, for many of our listeners used to hearing about the Ottoman Empire, the extent of Ottoman and Arab migration to Latin America generally, and Argentina in particular, may be new information. Let's start by having you give a brief overview of those migrations in the 19th and 20th centuries. Sure. So migration to Argentina and Latin America more generally came in that same initial uptick in, in out-migration from Ottoman Syria, particularly starting in the late 19th century, and coming into the Americas really starting about in the 1880s and peaking at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, and petering out by World War I, uh, much like the rest of the Mahjar. But uh, in Argentina in particular, we see about 100,000 people who uh, migrated to Argentina and then stayed there. This is 100,000 of, of somewhere around 130,000 who came in, but a good percentage of those returned. Argentina was the second most popular destination for people to come to after the United States prior to World War I, and after that was Brazil. So we're looking at really uh, one of the hubs, if you if you will, of the Mahjar to the Americas was Argentina and then um, Brazil just after that. What made Argentina so attractive for? There was a bit of a confluence of uh, legislation in the late 19th century to encourage immigration uh, into Argentina, part of the sort of larger liberal immigration project that culminated with deals for immigrants to be able to come and farm land. They, they would get contracts to uh, set up immigrant colonies. And uh, this was part of a, a larger intention of the Argentinian government to not only civilize, quote unquote, their population through a project of mass migration, but to also uh, try to send migrants to less populated geographies of the Argentinian nation. Uh, and particularly, uh, there, there were ideas about populating regions such as Patagonia and the far south. Um, and so the, the project was, uh, was also about sort of shoring up uh, more geopolitically sensitive border regions, especially in the south, that were seen as, quote unquote, unpopulated, but in reality had uh, significant indigenous populations. Okay, well, that's a sort of fascinating insight into Argentina's colonization project. <laughs> I wish we could talk a little bit more about that, but instead I'm going to ask you about uh, your book project. And the book project does get in a little bit to, to talking about Argentina's colonization project and how and whether that was realized and what role people from the Arabic-speaking Eastern Mediterranean had in that project, so maybe we'll come back around to that a little bit. But um, 
in my book, I look really at primarily 20th century uh, relationship between Argentina and um, the broader Middle East. And I, and I look at that through what I like to think of as a, a lens of migration. So the baseline of that relationship for me is the actual people who connect uh, South America to the Middle East because of their heritage in that region. So we're looking particularly at diaspora communities of people from Ottoman Syria, primarily in hub areas like Buenos Aires and other big cities like Cordoba and Tucumán, but also in rural areas um, all throughout the provinces, which um, which is what a good deal of my, my book project looks to do, is, is figure out what were the relationships between uh, diaspora groups living both in rural and urban spaces, and how did that, that relationship of... Um, of diaspora communities from the city centers all the way to Patagonian or Northeastern or Northwestern frontier spaces, how did they forge relationships that that put into place the financial capability or sort of the engines of cultural production that really drove the development of transnational relationships between people in Argentina and the Middle East? And so I look at specific groups, for example, We'll talk today, I think, about women's philanthropy and uh, and the role that they played in the development of the diaspora community in, in Argentina. But I also look at artists, cinematographers, comedians, and other people who have previously been really sort of at the margins of scholarship of the Machar in Latin America and in, in the hemisphere. And I look at those groups as, as a way to try to take different angles for understanding the development of this diaspora community rather than just trying to go through the sort of male elite urban press, which is, um, you know, really important history, but it's a history that has a lot more historiography, historiographical legwork done already in comparison to other groups in other regions. Um, but I don't look just at groups. I also try to look at the relationship, you know, in terms of international relations between Argentina and Middle Eastern uh, countries and and North African countries as well over the course of the 20th century and try to understand the way that those relationships were impacted by the by members of the diaspora community who worked as interlocutors in that relationship or aspired to at least and so I try to look not just zeroing in on the diaspora community itself or writing micro histories of particular groups or places but but to see again using migration as a lens to try to understand how those histories impacted larger state-state relationships later in the 20th century. Yeah, and the concept of transnationalism uh, is key in your work and and key overall in understanding migration as a process that changes individuals and communities in sending and receiving locations. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, how did immigrant institutions and associations foster these types of transnational connections, identities, and activities? Um, And really overall, in what ways did the Mahachar influence the Middle East in the 20th century? Absolutely. And there's actually been some really fantastic work, as you well know, in the, in the last few years by uh, scholars who, who look at um, what they've termed this sort of transnational public sphere uh, of cultural production, of political activisms, of solidarities uh, between, especially looking at the context of the Mahjar in the Americas and the Middle East. And one of the, one of the sort of places that 
this kind of um, activisms and uh, cultural production efforts coalesced were in immigrant institutions, social clubs, mutual aid societies, philanthropic organizations, religious institutions. And these, uh, and, I, and I naturally became drawn to, to trying to look at these institutions early on in my own work because they were the most visibly rendered piece of this particular migrant heritage on the South American landscape. That's, you know, the easiest thing to most immediately see when you get to a new city doing field work is, okay, where is the club social? Where is the, you know, um, Asociación Libanesa Argentina or what have you? And I did field work in 13 different provinces. So this was sort of the, this was the common denominator <laughs> that it was the easiest thing to find. And so what I started seeing, uh, not only doing my archival, archival work, working uh, in these different institutions and in their records and, and their holdings, but also looking at the secondary literature coming out, was that these institutions, as you said, really had the ability to foster transnational connections and activities that could really impact uh, causes, political causes, philanthropic causes back in the Middle East. I mean, we could see people mobilizing in Argentina to donate money, for example, to uh, victims of natural disasters happening overseas, mobilizing to uh, raise money for political campaigns. And they were really seen, uh, they saw themselves and were seen by many in the Middle East as an important constituency of people who had to be listened to and who had the power to, to drive cultural production and public opinion and political activisms in new directions from you know, from abroad. It sort of seems to me that uh, in, in looking at the types of actors that can forge these types of transnational connections or can or can influence um, circumstances in, in uh, receiving countries, I guess. We often try and figure out who these actors are and, and, and figure out sort of what lenses we can use to, to discuss them. In your work, you've written about um, what seems to be a persistent trope of the, quote, enterprising spirit, uh, <laughs> which has a, a sort of Spanish rendering that you can offer. <laughs> and the enterprising spirit is a sort of gendered lens uh, that's been used to explain Arab-Argentinian political, social, and, and economic integration. Uh, and, the, and the issue you raise with this trope of the enterprising spirit is that it emphasizes male-dominated businesses and cultural spheres. So uh, I guess you could tell us a little bit about what that enterprising spirit is, um, but then also maybe start to, to get us thinking about how um, women were active participants in forging transnational ties as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the the Spanish rendering of enterprising spirit is espíritu emprendedor, and it's uh, it's a set of words that I think if we <laughs> if we were able to you know digitize and and do a word search in in a lot of the periodicals that I worked with, I would come up with a stunning number of times that it has been used because just in the sort of analog manual review of uh, publications coming out of the Mahjar in Argentina from the early 20th century um, through the mid 20th century. It comes up extremely often as a sort of explanatory um, idea for talking about economic integration, talking about why uh, individuals were successful getting their businesses off the ground in remote areas or why they why uh, Syrian or Lebanese sort of public figures, uh, became important community leaders in in more population dense areas, and I became really frustrated after a while, saying, "What does 
this actually mean? Like, what, what, what is the Espíritu Emprendedor? Because it, so this is a term that's emanating from the Mahjar community itself, right? Yes, yes. And it's it essentially akin to, to the idea of, you know, bootstrapping narrative, which, uh, which historians and scholars of migration of what whatever group are, are likely fairly familiar with. But the more that I really dug into the articles that talked about the enterprising spirit, as you said, the more I sort of saw that this was often being used as code to talk about the activities of predominantly male business owners uh, in leveraging uh, industrial uh, or economic uh, power in local communities or in, uh, you know, on larger scale uh, industry on a national scale even. And... To me, that really left out the the rest of the population, which is you know the majority of people who are not the ones having these articles written about them as having the espíritu emprendedor. And so I tried to say, what other questions can we ask, or what other angles can we approach this community history from to figure out something that is, dare I say, more empirical <laughs> <laughs> than um, than just sort of assigning this enterprising spirit as this ephemeral thing that. Um, you know, drives progress. Well, and so, so if the if the enterprising spirit is not sufficient, um, what what did your research yield in terms of um, kind of uh, the uh, I guess other actors, and particularly um, women's participation? One of the particular groups that I started looking at early on were women's organized charity groups or philanthropic campaigns, and so I started using the ones who who showed up in in the Mahjar press who would publish, for example, their annual financial reports. And so this gave some really useful insight because they would oftentimes publish the full balance of their uh, income and expenses and lists of donors and lots of other really interesting economic information about how the, the world of philanthropy functioned. And so I started seeing that in in a lot of the cases, the most prominent philanthropic groups uh, that were uh, raising money for large projects or uh, to send overseas to not just to the Middle East, but uh, elsewhere to Japan, to Russia, to, um, you know, victims of natural disasters or fires uh, all over the world, that these were groups that were founded by and operated by women. And so this was, to me, a sort of logical place to start of looking uh, looking at the role of, of women in community building and, uh, and, and also sort of as a, as a way to access maybe some, uh, some nuance to this idea of what Espíritu Emprendedor might have actually looked like on the ground financially. And so what I found with, uh, I, I looked at various case studies of women's philanthropic groups. One of them in particular that I focused on was women who came together in 1917 to form uh, what they called the Asociación de Beneficencia Pro Hospital Ciro Libanes, which was basically a, um, a group that campaigned to be able to build a hospital, a Syrian-Lebanese hospital in Buenos Aires, in Argentina's federal capital. And they raised money starting in the late 19-teens. They broke ground and uh, opened the new hospital in 1937 and, uh, and continued to raise money. And, uh, and what I started seeing right away is that they didn't just raise money in Buenos Aires, which was the site where this hospital 
was going to be built. They raised money all over Argentina, every single province and every single national territory, meaning areas that hadn't been um, legally incorporated as provinces yet in the 1930s and 40s. Every single one of those areas in Argentina had people who were uh, designated as fundraisers for this hospital project, and they even ranged beyond the borders of Argentina into Paraguay, Chile, Uruguay, and Brazil, so all of the almost all of the neighboring countries. Yeah, so it's this, um, by looking at these philanthropic activities and organizations, you're highlighting not only the creation of um, the potential for sort of transnational connections, but, but certainly sort of the creation of an actual thriving community uh, of um, immigrants within Argentina. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one thing that struck me uh, in the particular article we're referencing is, is the encouragement that, that donors could send their samples in for, for their uh, presumably blood and urine samples for, for um, diagnostics. Uh, yeah, it's just a, a fascinating uh, sort of material connection that you, that you traced. Yeah, I um, I was actually just going to bring that up if you hadn't mentioned it, but uh, <laughs> yeah, because it's too juicy to set aside. <laughs> so one of the one of the big questions, if you're you know not just in this scenario, but just generally speaking, is if you're doing a massive philanthropic campaign. I mean, anybody who's had any you know tangential relationship to a fundraising endeavor is how do you get buy-in from um, you know community, and how do you get buy-in from people? who are not necessarily the ones who are going to be benefiting the most from whatever resource it is that you're trying to open up through that fundraising effort. And so we see various, think, you know, very savvy strategies get deployed by women in the um, pro-hospital association. And for example, they did a, a more typical sort of sale of bricks. You know, you could donate X amount of money and you'd have a certain brick, you know, be named after you and or anyone who donated a certain donor level would get a a certificate in the mail saying that they were part owner of the hospital and this is all you know completely symbolic they weren't uh it was not literally run as like a you know worker cooperative or employee owned or anything like that but you know these are these more typical symbolic things and the the one that for me is more out there and I, i would have loved to have more information about the particular genesis of this sort of fundraising move was that they started offering uh, sort of slates of medical testing that you could have done if you lived too remotely to be able to come to the hospital. Because some people lived, you know, uh, many, many, many hours of train journey away from the hospital, you know, question of days of travel in some cases, if you lived in the sort of southern reaches of Patagonia or up in the sort of Indian borderlands of the uh, northwest. There was really no very very little possibility that you were going to come all the way to Buenos Aires to get treated for for some malady if you were to actually fall ill. So they started publicizing in their newspaper that they had uh, created in association with their philanthropic group that you could send in, as you said, blood, urine, spit, <laughs> or a number of other things which we don't actually all have the to go into. You can yeah, anything you want, you could send it. They would run a, a series of tests on it in their lab you know, however viable that scientifically might have been after various days of, you know, riding in a train to be able to get there. And they would, you know, tell you about your health. And and for me, this this not only created this sort of fascinating circulate, literal circulation, biological circulation of tiny pieces of, uh, you know, people's, you know, corporeal beings, but it also extended the, the medical service, it extended the benefit, at least 
the idea of it out to a much larger geographical reach than just people who are going to be in proximity and served in that community in the uh, Villa de Voto area of Buenos Aires where the hospital was. Yeah, thank you. Uh, okay, so we're going to let the audience stew in their own juices for a minute <laughs> or two while we take a break. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Ella Fredentuono, here today with Lily Balafay, discussing her research on the Arabic-speaking diaspora in Argentina in the 20th century. You just heard a snippet of a recording of the world-famous Lebanese singer Fairuz performing an Argentine tango. Of course, tango was one of the many musical styles that swept the globe during the early advent of the modern Arabic recording industries. But Lily, was this recording in any way related to the large Levantine audiences for Arabic music in Argentina and Latin America? You know, Ella, I wish that I had a more succinct answer to to exactly, um, you know, the origin of this particular recording, which I came across in a, sort of an archive of old tango recordings, a sort of digital repository, and worked really hard to figure out who had Fairuz recorded with and when and how exactly that collaboration came about. But my understanding is that it was quite early in her career and was with uh, an Argentine tango orchestra and was one of the... You know, perhaps this is the spin of the of the source that I was looking at, but was one of the sort of things that helped launch uh, some of the the hybrid sort of musical styles that that she became known for in her musical career, and and so I don't have a more specific answer as to that particular recording, but one of the things that I look at um, in my book is is actually the circulation of cultural production of artists and filmmakers and stage actors and the the sort of way that they really defined uh, image and a aesthetic and a sound of the homeland for 
diaspora audiences across Argentina and also for Argentines and South Americans more generally who didn't have heritage in that part of the world. So there was very much a sort of mutual interest in the you know sights, sounds, and idea of um, of the Middle East, uh, the the aesthetic that was that was communicated by this group. I look, for example, at a, a group of filmmakers who made silent films that were documentaries of Middle Eastern landscapes and would show them in different communities across uh, not just Argentina but all of South America, and uh, and would travel along with. We would call them orquestas orientales, so <laughs> Eastern orchestras of sorts, um, and uh, and I've been able to sort of uh, trace artistic genealogies of, of relationships between artists and filmmakers in these really vibrant hubs of cultural production, places like Cairo, to to places like Buenos Aires and Sao Paulo, and and look at the the ways that again this sort of network of tiny communities and rural outposts hosted singers and dancers and comedians and filmmakers and supported those cultural projects. And so it wasn't just a question of people coming and rotating through the major hubs of Rio or Mexico City or Havana or Buenos Aires, but it was also about the support that they got from people in places that were way out there that had you know tiny diaspora populations as well. Yeah, and, and so before the break, we were discussing, um, you know, the ways in which women's beneficent societies are revealing these extensive um, rural-urban connections uh, within the Argentinian Mahjar. Uh, it sounds like uh, sort of cultural consumption is another mm-hmm. area you've analyzed. But uh, Lily, you've also been engaged in an ongoing digital history project that's intended to shed light on the sort of characteristics, especially economic characteristics, of rural immigrant communities. Um, so could you describe for our listeners some of um, those sources and those techniques that you've been using? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been working since I was a since I was a postdoc at the Kairala Center for Lebanese Diaspora Studies at North Carolina State University on moving some of my work into uh, interfacing with digital humanities and digital history and and really had the benefit of working with this very strong program in public history to try to figure out um, ways that I could make some limbs of my work more accessible to a general public. And so I absolutely naively thought going into it that I, I'm just going to do this side project of this digital mapping and it will be completely unrelated to the book I'm writing. Uh, it'll just be this little public history side thing. <laughs> and those are really famous last words, I think, because as soon as I started doing it, or not as soon as I started doing it, but but relatively uh, shortly thereafter, I started realizing the new dimension to the to the analysis in my own work that I could bring by using digital tools, digital mapping, uh, the creation of searchable databases to run data sets against each other, and how this could actually provide a really important window into, especially as you were saying, uh, rural communities and the way that uh, demographically they were comprised, where they were located, uh, how they how people within those communities moved, what they did. And, uh, and this came out of a particular batch of sources that I started working at that were these business directories produced by people in the Mahjar. And this is not something unique to Argentina. We see these come out of diaspora communities in the United States and all across Latin America. And they were sort of your yellow pages of the diaspora community, but pre-telephone in most cases. And uh, and they would contain information about people who uh, lived 
all over, in the case of Argentina, all over the provinces and national territories and in the big cities. And it would list their name and where they were located, their address. It would list their uh, profession. And uh, in many of these directories, which I have from uh, from the early 20th century through the mid-20th century, it would have information on how to get to that community physically by train. And so one of the things I started thinking about early on and that I had been thinking about prior to this digital project, but really came back into focus was the role of railways and the role of rail transit in the, Democrat, in the, the dem- demographic spread of this community in Argentina. And so in doing this digital project, I started realizing I actually have quite a bit of demographic information about people in geographies that have not been written about at all because there's not really what one would consider a critical mass, you know, sort of, of, of people to, to write a historiography of, of um, Sirio-Libaneses in XYZ, you know, frontier area mm-hmm. of northeastern Argentina or, or Patagonia or where have you. And so I started being able to cross-reference information that I was uh, making into a giant digital database based on these business directories with old maps of Argentinian railways oh, cool. to try to be able to get a, a visual data representation of where people were. And I think that this is a really important next step that we take in terms of historiography of the Mahjar is, is just doing the what is really sort of grunt work of figuring out where people were and what they were doing because we have plenty of anecdotal information. We have plenty of people in... Uh, cities or people getting newspaper stories published about them saying that you know that our our community is uh, spread out to every corner of the country and they're doing great work there and what have you but I want <laughs> I got to a point where I started wanting some <laughs> some you real concrete strong empirical bent yeah, value, yeah. Really. <laughs> well, okay. I don't know where that came yeah. from <laughs> Uh, well, so okay, so the the data has kind of revealed this this strong connection between the the railroads themselves and, and where people are, are ending up. Mm-hmm. Um, so what other patterns um, surprised you in, in analyzing this data and mapping this data? Well, one of the things that um, that I applied the, the data to beyond trying to uh, draw certain hypotheses about where how settlement patterns unfolded, you know, around the terminus or hubs of a rail line, um, or figure out how small business owners moved up and down rail lines uh, according to shifts in population or, you know, being able to draw conclusions about people looking for new business opportunities. It also allowed me to highlight uh, women's ownership of small businesses from the early 20th century onward, which is often not given uh, much, if any, press in uh, in the ethnic press. And, uh, and then another thing I started doing in relating sort of this digital project limb back to the the conversation we were having a minute ago about the the hospital and women's philanthropy is that I started being able to run lists of donors to philanthropic projects like the hospital Mm -hmm. against this demographic database and started to figure out that people who were donating to philanthropy campaigns were not necessarily people who had a good amount of or a decent amount of disposable income. These were people who worked um, as uh, ranch hands or leather workers or, you know, a whole sort of array of of occupations that is not necessarily the people who, going into this, I had preconceived of as what's the donor base for a major philanthropic project. 
And it also it seems like it sort of circles back to that enterprising spirit too, because we're thinking about a, a mahjar that's populated by people who are, I don't know, making X number of pesos instead mm -hmm. of people who are owning uh, uh, factories or, or what have you. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and it's a small window into, you know, these particular set of questions. But for me, it's it's a it's an invitation to really try to say, okay, well, this is one set of archival sources, these business directories, <laughs> is one thing. And by looking at them from a different angle, we're able to, you know, s start gleaning some really important information about communities that are often much more marginalized by, by scholarship. And so if we start doing that with, uh, with other sources, perhaps more well-trodden archival sources, one thing that I've been trying to do is to look at the, the prominent um, press organs of the Mahjar in Argentina and say, what, uh, what new approaches can we take to looking at, at, um, at these that are beyond the sort of you know, vibrant editorial debates or you know, global news coverage, which is very exciting, and, and I enjoy writing about that as well. But for example, what can the social pages tell us? Uh, one data set that I've pulled from the sort of, uh, you know, social social life section of a lot of these newspapers, which has information about births and deaths and christenings and all of the typical stuff, but they also have sections called viajeros, which are these traveler sections where they people, um, news correspondents and posts all over the interior of Argentina would send in information about who had come or departed from their town or city, and oftentimes why you know what what business were they traveling on or was it for illness or was it to see family and uh and so i started going through and taking you know taking information from every single time a viajero section showed up in a newspaper in the years that i had business directories for and then running that information against mm -hmm. the occupational data that we have and saying who was traveling where were they going and it really shows that there's a sort of baseline of mobility between limbs of the Mahjar in Argentina. And it's not just about, okay, let's do a study of, you know, what's happening in Cordoba or what's happening in Santiago del Estero or in the Patagonia region. It's a, you know, there's, there's this important context of people continuously moving around between these areas. And the first year that I pulled samples from, I was looking, I looked at about 2,000 different instances of people moving, not moving, moving house, but just traveling from one place to another for a vacation or, or various other reasons. And that really drove home for me the importance of, of not looking at these communities, not looking at institutions as static, as not looking at them as um, being, you know, beholden just to a local set of constituents or values or interests or goals, but really um, about a sort of circulating uh, you know, circulating people, circulating money, circulating cultural production that, that moved throughout Argentina and South America. Yeah, I guess just any other um, thoughts you have about future directions and using uh, these kinds of, of digital tools that you've developed? I'm actually starting a new project that uh, that looks beyond Argentina. For, for this, that the first book, I really wanted to look at one of the major receiving countries during the 19th to early 20th century immigration boom. But I wanted, within that context, to look more sort of demographically at the margins of a, a smaller immigrant community. So I, and, and thus I ended up looking at Syrian and Lebanese migration. And for the next project, I'm, I'm moving to also look at that 
same time period of the immigration boom, uh, but extend it a little bit further forward into the 20th century and move away from the sort of central hubs of migration of the of that boom era. And so I'm wanting, I'm wanting to look at Central America and the Caribbean basin. Uh, there's some some key, <laughs> oh, a handful of key differences between Central America and the Caribbean basin and the southern cone of Latin America, demographically, historically, um, politically, etc. But um, but one of the major differences that we see if we're just zooming in on looking at the history of Mahjar in um, those two regions is that in Central America, we see a slate of um, exclusion policies or restrictive uh, pieces of legislation passed from the 1890s through all the way up to the 1970s in countries like Costa Rica, uh, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. Uh, they passed laws that uh, either restricted or sought to completely exclude people of various designations, including quote-unquote Turco or uh, Sirio, Libanese, Arabe, North African, and the list goes on. And this, this among other ethnicities and nationalities. But, but I started looking at the the scholarship around it and trying to figure out. Okay, but here's the thing: there were actually people from those places there, right. and so the focus up until now has been on, well, there were these exclusion policies, but we haven't actually looked at the migrant communities that were there throughout the period of supposed exclusion. And how can we use some of the techniques and the methodologies I've been working on using digital mapping and uh, sort of data processing for one of the hubs of the Mahjar to look at sort of the margins of the Mahjar right. and figure out how were people moving around, crossing borders within Central America and moving, moving around in that area, what were they doing and where did they come from? So I've been looking at business directories uh, for all of the Central American countries that contain actually even more demographic information than the ones for Argentina and that they also contain information about where people migrated from in the Middle East prior to coming to Central America. So that's uh, sort of the exciting new direction that I'm hoping to take the research. So your side project continues to grow and grow. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's taken on a life of its own now. I can't control it. <laughs> Uh, well, Lily, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, we've covered a lot of material here, uh, but there is so much more that we weren't able to cover, including more detailed information on the business directories and uh, Lily's mapping project. So we encourage our listeners to check out the bibliography for this episode on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. You can also check out the website for other episodes that address Middle Eastern diasporas, transnational actors, and global effects of migration and mobility. Uh, and please, as always, feel free to join us on Facebook, where we stay in touch with our community of over 30,000 followers and post news about upcoming series and episodes. Uh, so again, Lily, thank you. Thanks so much for having and, me. And, and thank you all for listening. <laughs>